Hey guys, this is the C3 Church Malmo podcast. I am believing God will speak to you today and that a greater level of faith will be unlocked in your life. For more information about C3 Church, go to c3malmo.se. God bless. Our Father in heaven, say it with me, church. Hallowed be your name. Your come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Amen. Deliver us from the evil one. Right? We've gone from give us today our daily bread, forgive our sins. We're used to that kind of language. Some of you are more used to the language of the evil one, but others not so much. But that's how this prayer ends. The early church added on that cool doxology um, about the kingdom is yours and the glory and power so that it would kind of end with this big boom moment, right? But in the original manuscript, it ends like this, deliver us from the evil one, right? wait a minute, what, what is that doing here? I thought Christ already defeated the evil one. We've been delivered, right? If you're a Christian and you say Jesus is Lord, why in the world did Jesus teach us to pray, deliver us from the evil one? That's his job. He already did that, right? C.S. Lewis wrote, and I'm sorry I don't have this particular quote, so don't look for it back there, but listen to this. It's really good. C.S. Lewis wrote, that one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. Christianity thinks that this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity understands that this universe is at war, but it is not a war between independent powers, okay? It's a civil war, a rebellion, and we are living in part of the universe occupied by the rebel. Enemy-occupied territory, that is what the world is. He goes on to say, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed you might say even landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. I know someone might ask, do you really mean at this time of day to reintroduce our old friend the devil, hoofs and horns and all? Well, what the time of day has to do with it, I don't know. And I'm not particular about the hoofs and the horns. But in other respects, my answer is yes, I do. I do not claim to know anything about his personal appearance. If a, if a better, or I would say to that person, don't worry, if you really want to meet him, you will. And whether you'll like it when you do is another question. And I think it can feel like that today when we're introducing the evil one. There, there can be a response from some people to say, what? You're going to talk about the devil? A little red man with horns? No, he's not a little red man with horns. But he is a real entity. 
the devil, the Satan. Satan is not his name. That's a title, the Satan, like the devil. It means the accuser. And devil means the liar and the slanderer. He's called the prince of the air. He's the spiritual rebel once created for good in God's kingdom to work on his behalf who fell just like humanity in the garden. And now he's the leader of the civil war in God's universe. So this morning, we're going to look a little bit about who this entity is, what he does, and how we resist him. And I hope that that helps us understand a little bit better why the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. I have to admit, this sermon, I've been preaching here off and on for four or five years or something like that. This sermon was the hardest one to write. And at face value, I don't even think it's my best one. Like, the words aren't that amazing. Um, I'm, I'm a writer. I love to write. I, I'm looking for the beautiful turn of phrase. It didn't come very easily this week. In fact, it was pretty difficult. And what's even more, I don't, I don't know if speakers up here are su supposed to admit this, but while preparing, um, I'm starting to think things like, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can preach that. I don't, maybe I shouldn't preach anymore. I had that thought, maybe, you know, and maybe I, this, this is not for me, actually. All of the rest, it's been, like, not for real. I don't know what I was doing, but this is just not for me. And what's interesting is, of course, that type of lie, that type of thought, that's a pattern. That's been a pattern in my life. Maybe you're just not that. You're not needed, really. Whatever you have to offer, you know, they're fine without, you don't, you don't really have anything to offer. All that stuff came up this week. Pretty harsh. Pretty harsh. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Pastor. <laughs> well, I made it. I'm here. I didn't throw it. I mean, at some point, it was so bad. I'm like, okay, what if, what if I cancel this final hour? What will they do? Well, they can stream a sermon from somebody. I mean, it was bad. I'm like, what, am I, what is this? What is it? We're going to figure out a little bit. I think there's a clue in what I finally was able to get on the page about what this is. What is that? So, our capital G God, who we call God in the English language, Yahweh, as he revealed himself in the Old Testament, Jesus, Yeshua, as he was revealed to us in the New Testament, is the creator of all things. There wasn't God and a devil at the same time way back when all of this started. There was only God. He is unmatched in power, but right now, he is not the only immaterial, unseen being around. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That's a turn of phrase that doesn't mean firstborn or created, but actually supreme overall, just to confuse us a little bit. It says, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So there are visible and invisible powers, thrones, rulers, authorities. In other words, lesser gods with a lowercase g spiritual beings that have power but not as much power as our god they were all made by and are ultimately subordinate to our capital g god 
For some people in this room, that's like old news. Yeah, exactly. What are you talking about? You're tracking with the divine counsel in the Old Testament. Um, this is just, you know, um, meat and potatoes for you to totally understand. For other people, this is a bit different from how you've processed things about the spiritual realm before. Maybe you've been thinking, wait a second, I thought we believe in one God. There's only one God, right? No other gods before me. But that actually means not that there are not, no other spiritual beings that exist, but that our God is the highest one. He's set apart from all the rest because in him all things were created. And this is important. It's not just fun trivia. It's super important because it says something about the biblical worldview and the biblical picture and explanation of evil. God made heavenly beings and earthly humans, and all of his creatures were made as good and for good. They were made in his image to partner with him. He chooses to share his power. That's how he works. So he's got a heavenly court that he gives some authority to and says, go do your things there and there and there and do that. Um, and then he created humans to share in his authority on earth and says, here, I'm creating you. Partner with me. Let's make this thing happen. Let's spread this kingdom together. That's how he works in the heavenlies and in our earthly realm. But there was a fall, and there was a fall not just in the humanly realm, but in the spiritual realm also. A twin fall from grace as they and we chose to grab authority for ourselves. It's a civil war, and there is no neutral territory. We find the evil one in the image of a talking snake in the garden, eager to oppose God by hijacking the humans and their project with God. His desire, and the desire of all who have chosen to go their own way, is to oppose God's order, God's beauty, God's truth, and to stop the advancement of God's kingdom. And does he do it? Well, yeah. I mean, in the garden, the humans weren't able to withstand this poisonous spiritual pressure. And then we read in horror the next stories in Genesis that show us how humans can and do knowingly or unknowingly work together with spiritual evil. So it's not just human evil or human bad choices in these stories. It's the twin powers of human plus spiritual evil behind the action. Think of the story of Cain and his brother Abel. God finds Abel's offering pleasing but not Cain's. And Cain, rather than learn a lesson and get right with God is angry, and God gives him a chance to do what's right, even though he's feeling angry. And he gives him a warning that in his anger, he's vulnerable to sin. And instead of a snake hissing in his ear, the scripture says sin is at his door, crouching. It's like this beast, this entity crouching at his door, ready to devour him and desiring him. That's not just a metaphor about this internal human struggle. It's also communicating about the truth of evil in the spiritual realm. It's at our door, and its desire is for us. And it does with Cain. You know the story, or most of you, I'm sure. He murders his brother Abel. 
This is not, again, just purely human struggle, but the spiritual evil lurking, waiting for an opportunity to pounce. And two devastating consequences, of course, a ruptured relationship with God and brother. We also see this evil at work throughout the Genesis story, not only on the individual level, but also at the corporate level of human and spiritual corruption. Think Babylon and its economic and political and cultural systems that oppose God and breed violence and cruelty. Babylon, of course, becomes in the Bible the symbol for human kingdoms and the way they stand opposed to God. And in Revelation 12, we see beastly dragon images that are animating these systems. It's not just down to human stupidity and foolishness. There is something else at work. We need not look far in our world today to find some extreme examples of evil at work. And I think many people, maybe even most people in the world in total, intuitively believe that the cruelty and the horror in this world cannot be explained by natural forces alone. It's tempting, maybe, from this little tiny speck of a Western post-enlightenment cultural vantage point to write all this off, as will the Bible, you know, as primitive people's understanding of reality. We've got science and post-enlightenment. We know a lot of things. And this worldview might say, well, the problem in today's world is always down to just natural causes. It's, uh, we can explain everything that's gone wrong with chemical imbalances in the brain, or the problem of poverty, or an access to education problem, or it's unequal access to power between the sexes, or it's something else that can be solved by increasing our scientific knowledge and our socio-political activism to make the world more fair. It can be tempting to think in those terms, because certainly in Sweden, those are the terms in which most people speak in the marketplace, in the political sphere. And for the Christian, let's not get it twisted, it is essential to care for the poor and the widow and the downtrodden and the least of these, and we are also immensely thankful for the medical advances that support life. But we ignore to our great detriment and the enemy's great advantage, the reality of spiritual evil, not least because it just doesn't ring true. It just doesn't sit with intuitively what most people believe to be true. But more importantly, we cannot ignore the reality of spiritual evil because in order to win the battle, we've got to know who the real enemy is. And in fact, rebel spiritual beings at work on the individual and corporate levels are our true enemy. It's why the Lord's Prayer instructs us, instructs us to forgive our fellow man and elsewhere to pray for our human enemies and to bless those who curse us, but to pray for deliverance from the evil one. It's why Jesus did not start a revolt against the oppressive Roman Empire it's why Paul writes in his letter to the church in Ephesus, from prison no less, he's been oppressed by humans, he would say, and some spiritual forces animating those humans. He writes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, in the unseen realm. Back up to verse 10 there. 
he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. In other words, don't be afraid. It's not in your power, but the Lord's power that we're in this battle. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. We're going to come back to this phrase of standing and taking your stand. My family, on this topic of the devil's schemes, my family tells a story of my grandpa as a young man walking his three daughters to school. And this would have been in New Mexico, maybe it was in Oklahoma, in the south, in the United States. And he'd be walking them to school and um, loving on them and encouraging them, praying over them. And he would always include in his prayers, Lord God, protect my daughters from the wiles of the devil. <laughs> in a southern accent, of course, <laughs> yes. The wiles of the devil is another translation for the devil's schemes. It means devil's strategy. The thing is, he prayed it so often, and maybe with a few more scary details, that the story goes, my mom and her sister started to get really scared. <laughs> and my grandma had it say, now, Ed, cut that out. Quit praying about the wily schemes of the devil. <laughs> oh, so he stopped. <laughs> At least, you know, on the way to school, he stopped. What's funny, to add another layer to this story, when I heard this story as a kid, I somehow connected the phrase wiles of the devil with Wiley Coyote, the cartoon character. I don't know if you know, in Swedish, it's Gruoban, that goofy uh, coyote whose arch nemesis is a roadrunner. Right. Um, he's called Wiley Coyote, the wiles of the devil. Right. And his whole life is devoted to killing this bird. And this roadrunner is so fast uh, and cannot directly harm the coyote, but can indirectly harm him by uh, turning his own traps, you know, dropping anvils from cliffs and all kinds of things, turning his own traps meant to kill the roadrunner onto himself. And that's usually how these little shorts go. So at one point in my stage of development, I conceived of the devil as a slow, stupid coyote whose schemes were laughable and easily outrun. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't know if that's better or worse than a red man with horns. The reality is, of course, anything but laughable or readily detectable. The human heart, the Bible says, without Jesus is unable to resist evil's strategies. We believe in things like money and sex and status or a specific relationship is going to fill the hole in our hearts. We escape from the hard parts of our lives with distraction and escapism and hurry instead of asking, how might God use this hard thing to shape my character? I think that's a big one for today. We view other people as a little less important than ourselves and at times just as things to validate us. Or maybe we believe ourselves to be the worst of the worst, so low, utterly beyond love or redemption. We're held captive in the domain of darkness until we throw up our white flag and surrender and acknowledge the rightful king. And if I haven't said this yet, let's say it now. Jesus wins, right? That's what the cross at the center of our faith is all about. But the battle continues even after we say Jesus is Lord of our life. It's the battle to become like Jesus. He 
unlike our spiritual forefathers in the garden, resisted the devil perfectly for 40 days in the wilderness. And we are given the indwelling Holy Spirit so that we can do the same. But for us, it's a process we have to learn. We sometimes call this process in Christian language sanctification or the process of maturing or discipleship. Or if it's really bad, we call it a growth track or something like that. But Paul calls it a battle, a battle. So maybe instead of growth track, it's battle plan. I don't know. Spiritual conflict for us Christians throughout church history has generally been understood not only as against the devil, but against the flesh, against the world, and the devil. And the tricky part is how they sometimes work together. The devil's schemes get all tied up with my personal fears and failures, as in my example at the beginning of this sermon telling me that I should just throw in the towel right here and show a video this morning instead. That's playing on my own personal fears and my own personal history. Sometimes it gets tangled up with the prevailing cultural narratives of the day. Narratives that tell our children that in order to live the best life, you got to look inside and see what's in there and find who you are and try absolutely everything, and that's the path to freedom. That's not it. We read in 2 Corinthians that the devil even disguises himself as an angel of light, appearing to be good and true and beautiful. His ideas are sometimes tempting, not just painful. It might feel good, not just hurtful. It gets complicated. So actually diagnosing what you or I as an individual or as a church are working with or are up against on any given day takes some work, takes some discernment. What's the source of this battle I'm fighting right now? Is, it, is this idea or suggestion or worldview of God or of the world and the devil? It requires some self-awareness. Who am I and what are my personal temptations? What is my family history and my sin patterns? There's a plug for EHS, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, in which you can uncover some of those things. And it also requires an awareness of God's voice, as Pastor Christelle spoke about last week in her sermon on listening, learning to tune our ear to the voice of God so that we can distinguish what is his voice, what is my voice, and what is the accuser's voice. Sometimes we're battling sin patterns from our own life, just struggling to forgive somebody. Sometimes we're living with the effects of trauma that we were victims of, and sometimes it's mental health and a chemical imbalance that needs medical attention. And sometimes it's personal demonic oppression to resist or be delivered from. And even more complicated, sometimes everything is in the mix. Mm. Life is complicated. We must not oversimplify and make the mistake to assume that the devil isn't real or does nothing. Or conversely, to assume that he's responsible for everything. That is to give him too much power and to miss the other aspects of our battle. C.S. Lewis says the devil is equally pleased with either of those mistakes. Paul's description in Ephesians is not meant to bypass the complexity of life, but to help us know our enemy. It's not flesh and blood. And to encourage 
us to stand for the battle. He seems to say that we will be able to if we do what he says. In Ephesians 6.13, he says, Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, that's not some big battle we're waiting for. That's today and tomorrow and the next day. You may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Verse 14, stand firm then. I think Paul wants us to stand. In other words, hold your ground. If you are here this morning and you already say Jesus is Lord, then I'll remind you that he has rescued you and us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. So then, brother and sister, child of God, hold your ground in his kingdom that you've been given. Hold it. Stand. Don't give a centimeter. Some of you are here. And I really think you're feeling this civil war. Like that metaphor hits you on a personal level because you feel that right now inside or in circumstances in your life. You're feeling the war. Some of you are really feeling the battle with a specific temptation. Maybe you feel kind of mentally all jumbled. Do not be afraid. Hold your ground. One of the tools the enemy uses is after you've said Jesus is Lord and then after the newness and the warm feelings has worn off, he says, well, maybe that wasn't real after all. Or mm, maybe you're just not good enough to be a Christian. Or, oh, you did it again. You messed up. Those are lies from the accuser. Hold your ground. Don't give a centimeter back. You've already been given ground in the kingdom of God. When Jesus steps on the scene to announce his kingdom, you'll see in the Gospels there's all kinds of activity in the spiritual world. They rise up to resist and oppose. And in Acts, when we're following Paul and the others spreading the gospel, every time the gospel spreads to a new place, there's demonic activity to resist it. Every time. We have to expect this. Sometimes we preach freedom and I'm going to preach freedom. There's freedom. But we forget that when you step in the freedom, you got to fight for it. you got to hold it. Hold your ground. It's not smooth sailing after you say Jesus is Lord. We are on enemy territory still, remember? It's a turf war. It's a turf war. And the demonic don't just move aside. They're in the death throes of defeat and mad and taking down whatever and whoever they can in the meantime. It's a war outside and inside. But church, Jesus wins. Hold your ground. The idea of standing and holding your ground is really, really important. We look at Ephesians 4, a couple chapters earlier. Paul is writing, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Hmm. You could be thinking about Cain and Abel for sure when you read this. Notice that the angry feeling isn't the sin. It's not a sin to be angry, but harboring it, keeping it, not doing anything to release it to God, to process it, to work through it, to reconcile. Well, you're going to fall into sin. And not only that, you give the devil a foothold. Foothold comes from the Greek topos, which means ground. You give him ground. 
So no wonder Paul says, don't do that. Don't give him ground. Hold it. Hold your ground. The enemy works often with what is already in you, right? If anger is in you, he's going to tempt you to sin with that. If bitterness is in you, resentment, hurt feelings, even things that aren't your fault, if you've been the victim of trauma, he's going to use that. He's going to use whatever you've experienced, you've been through. He's going to use all that and turn it against you. Because remember, his plan is to oppose God's truth, God's beauty, God's world, and the advancement of God's kingdom. And he's going to use whatever you have to offer him. Hmm. Florence, my four-year-old daughter, the other day was playing with her seven-year-old sister, Ella, and a friend. And Florence felt left out and kind of slighted, and she got hurt and angry. And especially when this happens at the hands of her sister, she just feels it's the worst crime committed against her. So on this particular day, she's hurt and angry, and she smacks Ella. She smacks the friend. Oh, dear. I actually wasn't there. I didn't see this, but Adam came home and recounted this story. So, of course, Florence is calm now, and I'm talking to her about it. I said, now... What could you have done differently <laughs> when you feel uh, that feeling in your body, hot, when you're feeling red, and you want to let your arm fly, what could you do instead? Oh, she was thinking, she's so sweet, she's so cute, mm, Florence. <laughs> Sitting up there, she said, mm, well, I could take a deep breath. I was like, yeah. That's good. Okay. Ooh, I'm starting to feel proud. She's going to name some strategies. Maybe she's going to say, I can pray to the Holy Spirit. I'm like, is she going to say that? I can take a deep breath. And she does it. And I can feel calm. And then I can hit them. <laughs> Dang it. Okay, no. We got some work to do still. She's just winding up to get better aim, you know. Like, no. No. Ugh. Right. And that's the thing. I think that story so sweetly illustrates a tough part of all this is really understanding what Paul is saying, that our battle is not with other people. It's not with our sister. It's not with our brother. It's not with each other in this church. It's with the spiritual realm. But it feels like it's with other people. <laughs> it really feels like my battle is against flesh and blood. Right. I'm angry because maybe something my husband did or didn't do. Um, and it doesn't matter, by the way, if I have the right to be hangry, you know, I, if, if I just let that sit, if I let that fester in me, maybe I start to pile on other situations, I start to think lies like, I guess we weren't right for each other after all, this is just not working, maybe our relationship can't be fixed, maybe I'm thinking he's the problem, maybe I'm starting thinking I'm so bad and terrible, I must be the problem, oh, there it is. I've given the enemy a foothold in my marriage. Mm. Maybe anger isn't your flavor here, but fill in something else. Resentment about the job you took a risk for not turning out. Bitterness harbored toward one of your parents for treating you worse than your sibling. Hatred in your heart for people who vote a certain way. Unforgiveness toward an old friend or somebody you used to go to church with. And suddenly you've given ground to the enemy. That festers and it snowballs and it infects you. 
Ephesians later on says it grieves the Holy Spirit of God which dwells in you. And it blocks God from releasing a more full experience of his freedom and power to you. That's important. It blocks God from releasing a more full experience of his freedom and power to you, which affects our witness to the city around us. It doesn't stop him from loving you, but it certainly stops you from experiencing that love. Lord, deliver us from the evil one and into your loving embrace, the embrace of our Father in heaven. Don't we need to pray that? Yeah, we need to pray that. The good news, I want to remind us again, is that Christ won the war. That's the amazing, time-bending, universe-shifting message of the Bible, that the future win over the powers, sin, and death entered our present so that we could switch sides from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. No longer a captive rebel in service of the devil, but a son or daughter of the king, a free agent to love and live like Jesus. Hmm. But we're living on enemy territory, contested space until Jesus returns. And it's why you can study this later. Paul goes on in this letter to list some specific tools, the specific armor of God. But that's not our point today. Look at the end, toward the end of this um, chapter 6. Ephesians 6.18 tells us to pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. None of the armor he lists there, truth, uh, breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, none of that stuff is actual literal pieces of metal to put on, but put on in prayer and practice. Prayer is the thing that holds all of this together. It makes our battle possible it makes it possible for me to be equipped with the word of God. You must read it and pray it over yourself, over your family, over your sphere of influence. How will you receive a fresh experience of his love and understanding that his righteousness is yours now other than through prayer? Prayer is where we meet with him in the throne room, where God looks at you and sees Jesus and through the Spirit, you're all caught up in this wondrous love that's at the center of creation. That happens in prayer. Prayer is where you meet with God, where you remember who you are and the authority you have, where you work with the Spirit who prepares the minds of those out there to hear the gospel so that they're ready when you bring the gospel of peace. So my message today, church, there's a lot of details here. There could be questions about the evil one and his schemes. But I hope I've laid a foundation here and an understanding that we have an enemy. We're in a turf war. And be encouraged to stand, hold your ground, resist the devil's strategies, and pray. Your prayers matter. Hold your ground. And so, church... We are together going to take communion, so appropriate, where we actually take into ourselves the victory of Christ on the cross over the powers and principalities, sin and death. We're going to take it in. But before we do that, band, you can come on up. We need to pray. We need to pray. I believe that God wants to release a greater experience of freedom, a greater experience of his love 
a greater understanding of your authority in Christ so that we can make a difference in this city, so he can heal your marriage, so that he can heal that relationship with your mother or father or coworker. So as we sing, I'm going to have the pastors up to pray, and I'll be down here to pray with you too. I want you to come up for prayer if you need power to stand, if you feel like, I'm in the war, I feel it. It's a turf war going on in me. We want to pray over you that in Jesus' name, the power of the devil is broken in you, and you can live in a fuller expression of freedom. If you need to break ground that the enemy holds, if you recognized yourself in those descriptions of anger or bitterness or jealousy or whatever it is, that means you've got ground. You've let the enemy have ground in your life. Confess it. Break the ground. We can pray with you as you do that. For others of you, it's forgiveness. You need to forgive somebody. And the last category of person are those who haven't yet entered the kingdom of God. You haven't yet taken your position in the heavenly realm with Jesus. You haven't yet accepted his victory for the first time on your behalf. You haven't joined his church yet. That invitation is for you this morning. And you come up, we'll pray with you to accept that invitation, and then you are also welcome to take communion to take in that victory of Jesus into your life personally this morning. Please stand with me, church. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this prayer. I thank you, Jesus, that the disciples asked you to teach them how to pray that we might also learn. Lord, I pray that the Spirit would open minds and hearts this morning to the truth of reality, that there is a good creator God who loves them and sees them and is so excited to deliver them from the dominion of darkness. I pray for strength. I pray for those brothers and sisters in the house who need strength for the battle, who are kind of drooping, not able to stand, would your Holy Spirit strengthen them, Lord? Don't lie down. Don't give the enemy a centimeter. Stand. Hold your ground. I pray, Holy Spirit, right now for your gentle conviction. Show us the places in our heart where we've given ground to the enemy the anger, the bitterness, whatever it is, show us, Lord, that we might confess, bring it into the light, and accept your victory today. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and meet us with your truth, your power, and your love. In Jesus' name, amen.